Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast special Alpine Bushfires series, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people from the Victorian Alpine region who went through the bushfires which occurred from late 2019 through to early 2020. These stories highlight the different challenges and events people went through and how they overcame them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help you. If you love this conversation, please like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero's story. This conversation is with Janice Newnham the first of a number of conversations I had. And Janice's story is one that pretty much floored me. Oh, look, it it was just a harrowing account. But to hear her story, firsthand account of what happened on the day, the next day, you know, how it all happened and unfolded. And the force of nature is something that is beyond our human capacity to, to really handle. And a bushfire is one of those things. And when her family members were so vulnerable to the fire and she didn't know what was going on, she didn't know at times what was going to happen, that's really hard to hear. And it would have just been absolutely harrowing. Janice tells the story of bravery and and courage and trust, uh, camaraderie, support, companionship. So much comes out of a story like this. I'm just really proud of her and really grateful that she was able to come and share this story. So as she and many others are recovering and will continue to recover for many years to come, I know that Janice's story will bring a sense of understanding to you. And that's the purpose of these stories. The healing starts with just a step. And Janice took that step by sharing her story. And I'm really grateful to her for that. I hope you enjoy this story with Janice Newnham. Hello, here we are. It is another episode and I'm here with Janice Newnham. Newnham? Newnham? How did I, if I got that right? Yeah, dodgy name, married into it. Newnham. Newnham, got it. Wonderful. Thank you for being here and joining me on the podcast, Janice. Yep, my pleasure. It's always, you know, interesting for me to meet new people and, of course, I don't know the stories before you share them. And so I, at the beginning, I just like to say thank you for putting your hand up, for being courageous, for being willing to, to bear all, I guess, be vulnerable and share your story with me and and the world who, who wants to listen. It's not easy. It takes not just courage and bravery. It takes vulnerability and you know, going back there can be emotional and it can be hard at times. And so I just want to thank you for that because it is really inspirational and it does help people and people get so much from these stories. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Well, this is about you. So I'm now going to hand the mic to you and ask you to take us back to the beginning and share with us, you know, where your story starts, what happened and take us on the journey. Okay. Well, it was 2019 and, um, uh, 
to to give you context, um, I'm from a farm where we we're farmers here, um, in a small remote rural community of Walwa in Victoria, and um, yes, it was 2019. Um, things were quite busy. I'm very community orientated, so I'm busy on a few committees. Um, I was treasurer of the Gingelic Hub, which is a community organisation um, that creates events, has the showgrounds, does lots of things. So I was just busy. I was writing grants and organising events um, in the background to that. Um, obviously, we were running a farm. We've got beef cattle. Uh, we just finished carving, just finished joining, um, just busy on the farm, big a sort of agricultural program to get through. In, and then um, the Black Summer fires had all started up north. It was all getting a little bit jumpy for us. Um, it was hot. It was dry. Uh, we'd kind of come into Christmas and we had lots of um, grass in the paddock, which was fabulous from the perspective of clearly we'd managed things and um, we had enough fodder in front of us for the summer. That was really good, but at the same time, in the back of our minds, we kept thinking we're sitting on a tinderbox, there's um, fuel out there. Anyway, we got to Christmas, and then just after Christmas, we all went camping, and we were camping on the Murray River. It was lovely, except for it's hot, and there was smoke over on the hills just north of us, and there'd been a lightning strike the night the night before, and there was this pall of smoke just sort of drifting up into the sky. And we were getting a bit nervous. Anyway, we were supposed to camp the night, but no, couldn't do it. A bit worried. So we actually came home. We weren't very far from home, just about six Ks. So we came home with the, the idea that we would just prep the house, just in case the fire got away. Wasn't going to, but just in case. And um, anyway, by the next morning, Things had gone a little bit pear-shaped and the smoke was billowing even more. Um, there were, um, the Vic Emergency app was going off incessantly and telling us things about, um, all campers on the Murray River need to evacuate now. And because I'm risk management officer as well at the Chingelic Hub, I thought I'd better go down and just check to make sure there wasn't anyone on the showgrounds because we often have caravans and campers that stay there the night. So I went down just to check. And when I got there, um, there was this big burly, um, SES fellow in very badly fitting overalls. <laughs> he was about to pop out. <laughs> um, but they were already in camp there and they started off, um, uh, to create an emergency relief center, which is basically what the showgrounds has been set up to do. And, um, they uh, they had a, a catering committee already on board, and I didn't even know that. That's what camp, camping does to you. You get out of the limp, limp, out of the loop as to what's happening. Um, so anyway, so I said, yeah, put me down for a shift, a catering shift tonight. I'll be back. It'll be fine. And I ran away and came back home. By the time I got home, my husband Crundle, that's his nickname. His real name's Robert. We'll go for Crundle. Um, Crundle had been called out on the CFA truck and they had, um, were going to set up and wait for the fire to jump the river. Um, and he just left in a hurry and said, just, just do whatever's necessary, prep the house. So, um, I was left on my own. And then I called my son and told him that he had to come back from the river, come and help, which he was doing anyway. So that was fine. 
And then for the next couple of hours, we ran around like lunatics and we cleaned the gutters and swept the verandas and got all the, the leaf material away from the house. And we put, um, big drums of water at corners of the house just in case the hoses failed on us. And we set hoses up on the roof and in the garden everywhere and, and, uh, organized our, our valuables and, and things we wanted to take with us if we had to evacuate it, et cetera. So we didn't really have time to think during all this process. We were just busy. Um, anyway, it got to probably around four o'clock and I got a text message from my husband to say, it's coming. You're in direct line. Get, um, just get ready, get everything happening. Um, which panicked the heck out of me, but never mind. Um, so my son and I decided that we would move all the cattle that were just behind the house into the safest paddock that we had, which was one that we were just preparing for pasture innovation. So it was bald. So we shunted all the cattle. We mobbed them together and shunted them all into this paddock. And then as we were coming back through the gates, we could look down on the house. Um, the smoke plume was getting bigger. And as I was opening the gates, to come through, there were these black leaves drifting out of the sky and landing on me. And it was, uh, uh, by this stage, the fire was probably about seven or eight k's away, but we were getting charred leaves falling on us, which was frightening. So anyway, so we came back down to the house and we could see already that my husband was on the bulldozer and he was cutting a break around the house. And when we came into the driveway, the next door neighbor, who's a, um, uh, he's a, an absentee farmer they have a big property up the road but they have other properties which they live on so he cruised in the driveway and he said i've got to get they've got arab horses and he said i've got to get the arabs into the yard so they'll be safe can you come and help me they're going a bit berserk so sasha and i hopped up there one one on the atv one on the side by side and we went to help and that was kind of uncomfortable because it was, it gave me a real inkling that there was so much panic in the air. These horses were just going round and round in circles. They were bucking and kicking. There were cattle in the paddock as well. They were splitting up the cows from the calves. There was bellowing. It was just awful. Um, but either way, we couldn't get the horses into the yards. And in hindsight, it was just as well we didn't because they were actually safer in their, their very well grazed paddock. Anyway, so, um, so we gave up on that. We came home. We thought we'd have a quick bite to eat because it was looking like everything was going pear-shaped and we probably wouldn't get any food again for a while. So we had a quick barbecue and we were sitting on the picnic table near the road uh, just watching the smoke plume get closer and closer. And by now you could see flames just in the hilltops just opposite us, which isn't very far away. And, um, and then uh, the flames got bigger and then we had fire trucks rushing past us with red and blue lights going and sirens and, and the, the angst just grew. And within minutes, the flames were just boiling off the hill, coming down behind where all these horses were. Um, my husband and, and my son whipped up in the, um, the ute, which had the spray unit on the back. They thought they would just go and try and uh, put out the spot fires as they came down onto the next door neighbor's property. Um, they were back within about five minutes because they were chased out. Uh, the, the fire was coming down so hot and fast, it created a tornado in front of it. And it was, everyone just scattered and scarpered. 
and it was just bedlam. It was just manic. Um, the tornado, a tornado, um, leapt over the road and within a few seconds, the hill next door was on fire, just like that. And then it jumped across and it was into the Mount Burrow, which is the, um, the mountain right next to us. And it was just going. And, um, my husband, um, immediately just took the bulldozer. Immediately sounds like it went quickly, but bulldozers don't move very fast. Um, but anyway, he, he took the bulldozer off and he was cutting a break between us and the neighbor to try and keep it out from our property sort of thing. Um, and, and it all just deteriorated from there. It was just, I've never been in a bushfire before. And this was just terrifying. Um, the, the flame was monstrous. The smoke, the darkness closed in. Um, what by the time the boys left, because my, my son went along too, and he was like the water shield for my husband, um, while he was dozing. Uh, so they'd gone and I, me and the dogs were left behind and it was quiet. There was no birds. Um, and it was just me and the dogs and we just did laps around the house, making sure there weren't any spot fires and making sure the hoses were going and, and we just waited. And, um, then my phone started to go off and, um, it was like family and friends wanting to know how we were getting on. And it was just, too busy trying to talk to all these people and I didn't know who I told what to. So eventually I said, I'm only talking to one person and I sent out a text message and that was it. And um, uh, I just kept them informed by a text message to one person who spread it to the group sort of thing. Um, and then uh, it just got worse and worse. I had a whole crew of um, um, fire rescue squads sort of sitting outside my house because they couldn't get any further up the road. Uh, there was nothing they could do. It was just completely out of control. Um, and then through, through the, the evening, we were now sort of in darkness, literally. Um, through the evening, my son would come back occasionally and fill up and, um, and then he'd just disappear again. I didn't know where they were, didn't know what was happening. Um, and then we lost telecommunications. The tower went down. We lost power. So I was really quiet then. I had no outside communications. And in the middle of it all, um, my son came back and he said, Dad's running out of fuel. He needs to take diesel over the hill. So I bravely, in inverted commas, because I'm not very brave, um, loaded up the Polaris, which is a side-by-side ATV, um, put diesel in it. I put a big, huge bucket of water, wool blankets, my overalls, and I drove out there. And he told me that I needed to go over the neck between us and our hills sort of thing, and the next-door neighbours, he told me to go over the neck. So I drove towards the neck, which was stupid, because there was flames on both sides of the road, and I could just get to the point in the neck where I could look down into the valley where they were. It was just monstrous. There was flames everywhere. I had no idea where they were, um, so I had to take another route to get round, and then by the time I got round, all I could see was this massive wall of flame with my son running up and down, he was supposed to be keeping the flames on the other side of the dozed break. He wasn't succeeding. It was getting past him, and all I could see was him running along like a little manic puppet, and then he'd fall over and disappear, and then he'd suddenly pop up again and keep running, and 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 then all he could do was yell at me and told me to leave the Polaris, get in the ute, and I had to drive. So I was driving this ute with the, with the water tanker on behind, with my son running along with the hose trying to put things out, 
it was I couldn't see where I was going despite the fact that the lights were on because the the ground was so rough that you'd sort of have your lights driven into the ground or up too high there were creeks um the whole front of the ute was screaming at me because I kept lumping it into holes and and Sasha was screaming at me because I wasn't doing the right thing <laughs> and and I was screaming at him because he was stupid and he was going to die and he needed to get in and we needed to get out of here and way over in the smoke was my my husband uh, on the stupid bulldozer um and eventually he just came out of the smoke walking and he said this is it we can't do any more we've got to go so we got back into the vehicles and came back home to make sure home was okay and they were exhausted. They had been at it nonstop. This was now about uh, just after midnight. Um, so the boys just went to bed and just closed their eyes for five minutes. Meanwhile, I was walking around around the house to see that um, we didn't get any spot fires. Um, and then in the middle of the night, uh, about three o'clock in the morning, uh, Crundle just got up and he said, nah, can't do it anymore. We've got to go and see what's happening next door. So we went and did round two. Um, this time I was driving the ute. He was um, mopping out the fires. It got completely out of control. We ran out of water. And finally we saw the red and blue lights coming back again and the fire tankers, two fire tankers came back, at which point Crundle said, well, we'll leave it to them, but we have to go and check on the neighbours. So we drove down the road, no water, drove down the road, and the eucalypts on both sides of the road are now just flaming torches. We went up the neighbor's drive and they've got candle barks on both sides of the drive. The candle barks looked like massive torches. They were just on fire. We got up to the top of the drive. Um, the uh, cattle ramp into the driveway was wrecked because um, their son had borrowed a bulldozer that we had abandoned and was cutting a break around the house. But in his panic, he forgot to pick the rippers up, which are the, the big implements out back. So he'd gone over there cattle grid with the rippers down completely smashed their cattle grid so we couldn't get into their house block but they sort of appeared out of the smoke and they're going no no it's okay we're fine they're we're fine they said and there's smoke and flames all around them stupid thing to say <laughs> either way um we then decided right they're all right we better go back and see the what the ha- is happening at home so so we came home and this sort of coming and going and checking and whatever else just it just went on for days and the fire came back at us twice. Um, it, uh, at one stage, I just couldn't do it anymore. It looked like the flames were going to get us and I just figured that the house should be safe, but I wasn't going to stay there to find out. So me and the dogs uh, and uh, the big vehicle that we'd packed with all our treasures um, and my son following in, in the ute with the um, water tanker on the back, we just shot out for a little while and just stayed clear. And then um, my son came back ahead of us to to come back and see what happened. And then I thought I was just sheltering closer to Walwar. And I came back and, and uh, met him on the road and he said, don't go back there, it's gone. And I went, what do you mean it's gone? And he said, there's no house, dad's okay, don't go back, just go go back to safety. And I believed him. He was actually just trying to get me out of the way. He didn't want me in a position of, um, of, of harm, as it were. So I went back, but then after a couple of hours, I came, came back to see, see whether we still did have a house. And we did. It was still here, mainly because 
my husband had come back through the smoke um, with the bulldozer. He almost got crisped, but he came back through the smoke and he discovered um, that the trees on the front, um, uh, just off the front veranda were on fire and he put them out and the house was actually saved. It was very close, but he was saved. Um, but as I say, over the next few days, we, we just had this coming and going, panic, disaster, everything. Um, in the meantime, we didn't know how the neighbours were, and that was devastating to me because we had no communications. So didn't know whether we were just the last man standing or what was happening. Um, and we've got another property up the road, and we couldn't even get there because there were so many trees down, etc. Eventually, we managed to get through. And we just dropped in the whole way up the road, dropped in at the neighbours to see how they were going. They were in a much worse situation than us, but um, they still had the houses. All the occupied um, houses on our road were saved. All the unoccupied houses went. They were just crisped. So that was pretty devastating. But all our friends were still alive, and uh, that was amazing. So, yes, so effectively... I was in the middle of the bushfire and no, I'm not very brave, <laughs> but we got through. Wow. Um, where to start? I've got so, you know, you, you describe your story so well and vividly and I've just got these, the visual, right, matching your story as you're going. Your husband must be one brave, fearless man. Is that, is that right? I, I believe that he is. He doesn't. He reckons, um, he reckons he was as terrified as everyone else. And, um, like I actually caught him on the bulldozer at one stage. Um, and he was crying because he was so frustrated that they couldn't stop the beast. No matter what they did, they couldn't get in front of it and they couldn't stop it. And it was just marauding. It was just eating up, um, you know, good pasture. It was killing animals. It was, destroying infrastructure and um he was frustrated with the cfa because um hierarchy wouldn't listen to them as mere underlings they wouldn't follow um the local knowledge as it were and um and he got very close to getting crisped which really put the wind up him if uh, at one stage he went out in the bulldozer and he was in such a hurry that he just shot off and i ran after him with his helmet and his fire jacket I said, you've got to take these and I threw them at him and it was just as well because um, where he was dozing, the flame came round on him and, you know, a big monster dinosaur of a bulldozer isn't very agile and he had flames all around him and he just managed to get his helmet on and his jacket over to protect him and he just thought he was post and then just at the last minute the wind changed and it took the fire back on itself mm -hmm. And he managed to crawl the bulldozer out and that was just awful. So, um, and the boys, when they, they, they'd come home after a shift and I, I had both boys came home. Um, our son Connor came up as well and the boys would come in and they, they'd be really jumpy to make sure that their sibling or their father had also come home. And then they'd start talking and they'd, they'd start swapping these ghastly tales about the, the situations they'd been in and how awful it was. But then they'd start laughing because they'd got through it all and, and it was bizarre, but 
ah, oh, yeah, it was, it was awful. I don't, I don't think anyone's really brave in fire. They just, they just do what they have to do and it's just survival, really. Mm. I mean, most, let's face it, but most of us, majority of people have never faced fire. The, so mm-hmm. we've got no real life knowledge or experience and understanding, unless you're a firefighter or someone who's trained in fire, mm. you don't know how to deal with it. So the fact that your husband and sons were out there doing what they intuitively felt needed to be done was incredibly brave. And mm. yes. just hearing you talk about that is, yeah, it's just frightening to me. I'm thinking, what would I do in that situation? Well, I don't know, but I know that I'd be terrified. Mm. <laughs> so to think that you could take your machinery out there as a human and try and, you know, stand up to the powers of mother nature Mm. that is like it's life-threatening and you don't know and you've got the wind and then the fire and anything could happen it's Russian roulette really absolutely yeah um on the the uh, let me see the first well the first morning after the the first um blast of the fire as it were um my son went into town just to get on the tanker um, and after he came back from his shift, he brought the news back that we'd lost a firefighter. Um, Sam McPaul over at Gingelic had been killed. And that could have been any one of our fellas. It was just so awful. And, and his tanker had been flipped by one of these tornadoes, fire tornadoes. Um, and that was just devastating. Broke everyone's heart. But the, the worst thing I think from, uh, a wife, partner, point of view is the fact you um, you package up your husband or your sons or whatever and you send them out to get on that tanker knowing full well they might not come home. And um, during the whole episode, I took lots of photographs of all sorts of different things. I never once took a photograph of my sons or my husband because I had this this feeling that if I took a picture, it could well be the worst or the last, the last picture I'd ever taken them. So I just had this superstition not to take a picture of them. Mm-hmm. So despite the fact that they were immensely brave and did all these things, I've got no record of it for them. <laughs> I understand that. I do. Mm. It's yeah. such an unknown. How you said that the, the neighbours Bed a lot worse than you. Is that because of their lands and their 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 crop, uh, their livestock? Um, probably because they're closer to the bush. Um, mm-hmm. As soon as the fire got in amongst the um, native bushland, all the eucalyptus oil, etc., it just went up. Um, and it was so hot; it was such a a massive hot fire. Um, so uh, they didn't lose their houses, but um, their lands were completely blackened around them. Um, here at home, we lost um, probably 60% of the property, but for 10Ks up the road where the other property is, um, 100% gone. Um, no pasture, no no trees left really. Um, everything was scorched. Um, my husband's family house, their farmhouse up the road was gone. Um, his grand's flat was gone. They, they were no longer resident there. Um, but all his family treasures and memories were in those houses and 
that broke his heart too. Did you lose a lot of animals? Surprisingly, no. I've come to the conclusion that cattle are very good at tap dancing. Um, we had um, 60 head of cows and calves up at the farm, up at the other property, and we only lost two. Um, and the, the cattle are more intelligent than you'd give them credit for because um, the paddock that they were in was very um, heavily grassed mm-hmm. and it would have just gone up. And um, they had a couple of matriarch cows out there, very sensible lead cows, as it were, and they obviously brought the mob into the um, a laneway and then they just smashed through a fence and they got into a, a paddock that was um, heavily grazed so they, they didn't have as much fuel around them. And then um, at one stage I was actually watching the cattle across the road and they were amazing because they they could see the, the fire front coming and they'd sort of move along to the area where the fire front was um, less high, like less vigorous, and they'd sort of jump through and go around the back of the fire and then just mill to, like, put it out <laughs> and then just find a place of safety sort of thing. So much more intelligent than sheep. Sheep didn't go well at all. No. Did you take photos of the cows? Um, I did. I actually took, as I said, I took heaps and heaps of photos. And in the end, um, as part of my recovery phase, um, I actually created a book, um, with all the, well, not all, but lots of the photos. And, um, during the whole episode, um, at the point where I discovered that if I plugged the satellite internet into the generator, we had outside communications. Um, I actually started writing a blog post on Facebook so that I could get the information about how we were and how we were traveling to family and friends, um, quickly all in one go. And I, uh, afterwards, I accumulated all these blog posts, um, into a book and connected it all with narrative and these photographs. So, so we have, do have a record of the experience but no pictures of kids or crundle, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I mean, the memory's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, well, it's life-changing, right? It's one of those yeah. that will stay with you forever. Mm. And I'm, now that you've talked about recovery, so tell me, what was it like after the fire was out or had gone? Obviously, it would have had a, been a strange feeling in the, in the town. Tell me about the, the days after that and how you individually, maybe collectively, got through those first days and weeks afterwards. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite interesting because um, my book is called From the Inside and the reason why it's called that is because I was isolated. I felt like I was inside the fire, inside the whole event, and I couldn't get out. And I had to communicate to the outside world, as it were. And the reason for that is because the um, the police put up roadblocks on either end of our road and they would not let um, residents leave, or they could leave, but then they wouldn't let them come back in again. So if I left, I would not be able to um, come back to access the cattle and feed the cattle, the remaining cattle, um, and do all the jobs that I needed to do. So I actually stayed on farm or up at the other farm, just moving between the two, um, for a period of about 
I don't know, eight days, I didn't get off farm. And on the very first day that I managed to sneak through a roadblock <laughs> and I went across to Jinjalik, to the, um, to our sister village, um, to the Jinjalik hub, which we had set up as a committee. We'd set up the Jinjalik hub and built the new building as an emergency relief center in preparation for a disaster that may or may not come. And luckily it was there because it did come. Um, but that was the first opportunity, I suppose, that I'd had to get off farm. And I discovered that there were so many people there, so many community members, uh, mostly from New South Wales, very few Victorians for the same reason, because we couldn't cross the roadblocks. Um, but the, just the contact, the seeing people that you hadn't seen for, for days, um, and you didn't know whether they were still here even because the fire was just so ginormous. Um, that just broke your heart and opened your heart and made you, made you cry because you, you could just have contact again. So it's very, very important to, to keep those community ties, um, firmly established and, and keep people talking and, and just let them unload and let everything off their chest because there's, um, there's so much to, to de debrief on after you've been through a dis disaster and you need to, to unload it. So did you find that you were talking a lot with your neighbours and others in the community centre there uh, it, afterwards, allowing people to share their stories? Yes, that's very important. I did notice, however, that um, men aren't as forthcoming and I and therein lies the rub with regards to uh, mental health issues um, after a disaster because men feel that they have to keep it inside, keep it bottled up, don't let your emotions out. That in itself is quite devastating. So um, we had, in the recovery phase, we had a lot of, um, you know, tried, tried to have social engagement opportunities and community engagement and um, we had some mental health counsellors. Um, but you had to do it by stealth with men. You had to pretend, well, you know, not, uh, not do it as a direct, um, a direct conflicty type situation where you're saying, here is your mental health counsellor. You need to talk to him. Um, you had to find other ways to get them to unload and debrief without telling them they were doing a mental health exercise. <laughs> and, and what about Crundle and your sons? What did they go through to unload? Um, mostly because they're in the CFA, they were able to talk to other CFA members. Um, and a, at a few events afterwards, um, I'm a bit worried about my children because they, they don't live with us anymore. So basically they came up here, did their heroics, and then they went home again. So they weren't as exposed or didn't have the opportunity to do all the debriefs and um, have all the support. So, but at the same time, I think kids are much more resilient than you give them credit for and they, they seem to have bounced back okay. <laughs> but, um, yeah, Crundle, I think, bore the burden of what he'd seen and what he'd done for quite some time. One of the things that, that has become a bit of a problem for us is that, um, I've become a little bit, um, don't want to let go and uh, I want to know where everyone is all the time. And I think that's, that's related to the fire. I just, I've become a stalker. 
<laughs> and and I just I'm I'm panic stricken if somebody doesn't pop up at the time that they said they were going to or and and that's I think that's annoying Crundle a bit. <laughs> but it's to, I suppose it's to be expected. I almost lost them and I don't want to lose them a second time. But I'm working on it. <laughs> hey, you know, awareness is the first step. Yes. Um, uh, it makes sense. I mean, it's just it, you can't go through something like that and not be impacted in some way and it, or many ways. So, yeah, it's really interesting, fascinating, in fact. Have you, have you had kind of counselling yourself after the event? Um, I did have an episode of counselling. Um, I didn't find it that helpful. I found, um, I found the community interaction much more helpful because, um, we were all in the same boat. Um, some people had oars, some people were in a canoe, some people were in an ocean liner, but basically we were all in the same boat and we can, um, share our experiences and talk amongst ourselves and find told you I'd get interrupted and find a way through it. Um, so I think um, community interactions, the best way for our, for, well, for people I know to deal with it. Absolutely. And you've written a book. Has anyone else in your community done anything else to share their story? Um, I believe that up in, in the Upper Murray, there's a couple of people that have done photo books and similar type of arrangements. Um, I know that there was a children's book that was written about a little lost dog, um, which was quite useful, um, for, to explain it all to children and give children uh, some hope as well, because the little dog was found in the end, etc. Um, but I think I'm, I'm one of the few that has written a book that became commercial, I suppose, because I self-published and it went quite far afield. So, yes. It's lovely and nice to hear about the happy dog endings uh, as well <laughs> in that story. Mm. It's great for children. I mean, you know, children would have a completely different experience as well. You know? Yes. And, um, yeah, that's a whole other story. What now that you're out, where what you're four years, four and a half years, is it since the no, the event? Three years. It, it's three years. Sorry, I can't count. Three years. Yes, three years. <laughs> <laughs> because it happens on the cusp on New Year's right? Of course. Right, yeah. Okay, so we're just after that. Yeah. Um, are there? Do, do you have any trigger moments where you go to parts of your property and you look out? And then something triggers a memory and you look at it and, yes. and you just visualize the. Yep. There the are fun. several. Um, I didn't think, I thought that I got over it. I thought I was doing really well until, um, we had some windrows of, um, dead trees that we needed to get rid of. And my husband set fire to them and that was massive. I, I had palpitations. I knew that it was controlled fire and yet I, I just, got quite emotional about it um, um so that was certainly an obvious trigger um but also during the fires we actually um lost two dogs um not directly from the fires um one was mustering cattle um 
and broke her back and, and then the other one just got hit by a car and all the, the drama a few days after the, the event sort of thing. And I know where their graves are and that's obviously a massive trigger. Um, and then, yeah, just certain bits of the farm, like, um, uh, on the hills, for example, uh, immediately after the fire, I went and took a whole heap of photographs and, and to go back to the same spot and look down on, um, still obviously tree stumps, but everything's so green now. So the, the contrast is actually very uplifting. I kind of brings me back to the fires, but then we've recovered and everything's green and the, the trees have, uh, all the, uh, the trees have been triggered so that we've got new saplings coming up and, and, and that's, um, very positive. Yes. A reminder of the cycle of life. Yes, absolutely. We're very yeah. small in the, the whole cycle. Uh, yeah. We are. Yes, a very, very small component, humankind. Mm. And you only really get that perspective, I think, when you come up against something as big as what you did, where hmm. Mother Nature and, you know, and the animal kingdom is all combined and you're just this <laughs> the little ant. human, this ant yes. you, that's right, on the land hmm. that's nothing in, in, in insignificant to the to the forces of that fire that is doing what it wants absolutely yes mm-hmm. how do you feel today do you feel that you have overcome what the, you know any kind of the, the deeper trauma and pain of the fire events do you feel like you're out of the woods so to speak well I do think so. <laughs> I thought I was really good. I thought I was going brilliantly. And, um, I had supported our community because we created a community recovery committee and I'd been running around like a twit trying to support everyone and make sure that we had, um, you know, grants written and helped people with grants and pressed forward and, and took the opportunity out of the fires, out of the disaster, um, to have all these, um, uh, amazing infrastructure projects that we could get done for our community because of all the, you know, bushfire recovery funding, et cetera. Um, so I was running around like a lunatic. Um, we had, um, got along really well with our farm and we'd replaced fences. Um, spring, Mother Nature had been wonderful to us and, um, the recovery of nature was, was magnificent and fabulous and, and so I, I thought that I should have had everything going for us. And then, I don't know, I just had a bit of a, a crash attack not so long ago. So they always describe this sort of recovery phase, you know, where you're supposed to have the disaster and then you have a period of elation because you've, you've survived and, and you've got through it. And then all the, the drama of the recovery phase sort of wears you out and, you know, the grant writing and the fix up and the, um, infrastructure repairs and the struggle and it drags you down for a while. And then, and then you start to get better. So I thought I was on the, the outside, the upper loop and I was getting better. And then I had a setback and, and I'm a bit uncomfortable at the moment, <laughs> but I'm sure it'll come back. I'm sure I'll get there. <laughs> and yes. the, the, the best thing for my recovery was um, writing the book from the perspective of um, it was an opportunity to really unload and unpack and sort through where we'd come from 
to where we are now sort of thing. So that that was a, a a really good opportunity and i think that people in a disaster should should do something like that they should document it and they should work out um you know the black bits and and how we've come out the other side and we're now in the green fluffy bits not mm. quite the same uh context for people in floods i suppose but you get my drift <laughs> i do get your drift and one thing that's consistent with i guess all the conversations i have with people in this one's podcast is, you know, everyone's healing journey, recovery journey is different. Mm. And the other consistent thing is that many of them say it's not linear. It's no, not a straight certainly. line. Yes. Sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. And yes. it's it's just a journey. Mm. So, And that journey can be very long, I've come to the conclusion. Um, I was speaking to some people in Christchurch um, about the earthquake disaster and, and some of those people are still struggling. Um, but there's always help out there. Um, I don't think anyone really needs to struggle on their own. Um, uh, certainly uh, reach out. There's, there's lots of help and support. Um, um, we had the bushfire recovery, um, flood the area with support support workers and they were fabulous so there's always somebody out there there's always near (laughs) that's really important you know that point because it's so easy for some people especially if they live alone or if they don't have as many people around them ordinarily to to reach out you know and and those independent people that like to just stay in their little caves but it's very hard to heal if you don't connect and have that downloading that you mentioned yes Yes. And, and proper help, you know, if one needs to really go through and unpack those, those traumatic events. I think you, you, any kind of trauma, you know, you can't heal on your own. It's no, it, 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 it's just not part of healing. Healing requires connection. Connection and reflection. Yes. Mm, It does. Um, thank you for, for, everything that you've shared, Janice. It's just been absolutely amazing. I love I've loved hearing your story. I I realize that you're still on your path. You're still on that healing journey and, and obviously there's more green days than dark days. And you know, I I like to see the glasses half full and, and always focus on the positives. And yet I also know that there are days when you can only see the negative and that hopefully those days become less and less for you as hmm. you move forward. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, last question for you. Uh, if anyone is listening to this who may have gone through something similar or in, in, and had their own journey or experience, is there anything you'd like to say to them? Um, uh, there's this little motto that I hang on to, um, and it's part of a Beatles song, <laughs> and it also – was commonly said in a movie that was called um, The Last Marigold Hotel, which is um, it'll be all right in the end, and if it's if it's not all right, it's not the end. And I, I kind of hang on to that because it, there's always hope for the future. It, it'll get better. You'll get over it. Something will, something will change your perspective and your view on things. So that's what I hang on to. <laughs> I love that. I've heard it 
before, but not for a long time. And I love the, the reminder. It's, a, it's hmm. a really lovely thing to, to hold on to. Thank you. Yes. Thank no you worries. so much. Janice, it's been a pleasure. I, I want to thank you for showing up and sharing this story. And I know that it's going to inspire and uplift others. And I just want to honour you for that. And thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes with the Alpine Bushfires special series. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. And join us for our next hero story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken new